Elon Musk. You know, he is a hell of a lot richer than I am. But am I poor because he's richer? No. I'm richer because he's richer. Yeah. Hello, welcome again to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today is October 19th, 2023, and I'm delighted to have on a guest who's been working for free markets and liberty for a long time and just someone who is really a great person overall. It's none other than U.S. Senator Phil Graham. Senator Graham, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Thank you, Vance. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on, and we've known each other for a while through the Texas Public Policy Foundation and other opportunities, but I'm really glad to have you on. And We're going to talk a lot about your, your book, The Myth of American Inequality, which I hope the audience will go out and, and purchase. Um, for the audience, though, let me give a quick overview of your bio, and then we'll get right into it. So Senator Phil Graham is a long and distinguished career in public service, academia, and the private sector. He served in the U.S. Congress, representing Texas for more than two decades. First as the 6th Congressional District Representative to, to the U.S. House of Representatives, then later as a U.S. Senator. His legislative record includes landmark bills like Graham-Lotta Budget, Graham-Rudman Act, Graham-Leach-Bliley, and, and other big, big ones. Um, his latest book is The Myth of American Inequality. He taught economics at Texas A&M University for 12 years before becoming a member of Congress. He has published numerous articles and books on subjects ranging from proper, private property, monetary theory and policy, to the economics of mineral extraction. So with all that, Senator Graham, um, the first question that I have for you, like I do all my guests is, you know, why do you do what you do and have been doing for so long? Well, that's a, a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I have an inquisitive mind. My problem in academics was I never met a problem I wasn't interested in. Hmm. I got into academics because I liked economics that explained the world that I grew up in. And I came to Texas A&M to teach. I loved it. And then one day I woke up and I was an adult. Hmm. I had become a full professor. I had two little children. And I didn't like what was happening in the country. In the 1970s, we were being told that the joy ride was over. We'd never have enough energy again. That hmm. We were going to have to learn to live on less. Well, that wasn't the America I signed on to. Yeah. So anyway, to make a long story short, wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about the oil crisis. Hmm. And I got a sort of an outpouring of response about hmm. the oil. It kind of shocked me. I'd written a lot academically, which nobody had ever read. And uh, suddenly people read and liked what I had to say. And so that was sort of the beginning that I decided I was going to start speaking out on public policy issues. I ended up running for office and spending 25 years in, in uh, the belly of the beast. Yeah. And yeah. Then when I turned 60, I started thinking, well, at, at what point am I going to call it a career? Hmm. It's so tempting to stay on all the people at work for you once you stay on. But in any case, I decided to uh, not run again. And I went into finance and I still work. I lie and mm -hmm. tell people that I have a young wife and she wants money and she'd put me in a cheap nursing home if I didn't work. But <laughs> the, truth is, the truth is I like working. Right. And what do I write stuff? I have written 
Oh, maybe 125 guest editorials to the Wall Street Journal. Hmm. Because some issue comes up that I feel like there's something that needs saying that's not being said. And so I do it. Now, what this all means, of course, is that I had to get pretty organized in how I use my time. Hmm. And I also do something most people don't do. And that is, I set aside time for my thought life mm. where I think about things and think of and work on issues I want to work on. So anyway, it's sort of a lifetime routine I've gotten into, and I, I doubt if I'll ever get out of it. Well, I, I, I hope that I can continue to do something like that throughout my career over time. And you, you've definitely started, you know, paved the way uh, for many of us uh, who want to do better, who want to let people prosper and, and provide more free markets and liberty. Your career has really done that. So I appreciate all that you've done. You know, that's kind of why I started this podcast really is to talk about policy, to talk about free markets, because I feel like we're losing some of that, Senator Graham, um, you know, whether it be on the left or, or especially on the left, but some even on the right are talking more about having government involvement to get certain outcomes instead of letting getting government out of the way. <laughs> I, I wonder what your thoughts have been on some of that that you see out there. Well, look, as Bob Taft said, and it's written on his memorial in Washington, freedom has been the key to our progress in the past. It is the key to our progress in the future. If we can preserve liberty in all of its essentials, there's no limit to the future of the American people. Yeah. Uh, you know, if government worked, if government could really decide where to invest money, what technology was going to work, what prices should be, we would have torn down the Berlin Wall to have gotten into Eastern Europe. Yeah. It never ceases to amaze me mm -mm. that people talk about competing with China and how do they want to compete by adopting the Chinese system. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's just astonishing. The way to compete with China is let Americans compete. Let talent out. Yes. Uh, let talented people in. Let our system work. Hmm. If we do that, we, we, you know, I've debated many Chinese scholars on the subject of whether China would overtake us. Hmm. You know, I've always answered it. Well, it depends on us, not you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we <laughs> let our system work, we'll never be overtaken. No. Uh, but and look, they made they made a lot of progress by adopting more economic freedom. Now mm -hmm. that reversing that process, their growth rate is going. Yeah. Yep. And so we should learn from that. Yeah. Uh, I guess is a decade from now when we look back at all of the money that the government has invested in computer chips. Mm -hmm. We look back at all of this transition, the greening of the world, that it will have turned out to be a colossal waste of money and yep. resources and uh, to some extent lives. Yep. No, I, I agree. And I've learned a lot of that from you and, and your wife too, Wendy, who, who's great. You talked about earlier, but she, she's great. And I, I, you know, I, I, the lessons that we should have learned from the past seems like we keep repeating them. And I don't know if that's because of the political will with James Buchanan and public choice economics talked about the rent seeking that goes on. Cause you know, politicians gotta, they gotta win votes. They gotta get reelected or they don't stay in, in power. 
But I wonder, do you have any other ideas of like, why do we keep repeating a lot of these same mistakes? Well, bad ideas never die. Yeah. They can be tried. They can fail. But look, from the time of the ancient Greeks, uh, there has always been a strong element in society that seeks power by basically going out and saying, look at those successful people. Mm. We can take what they've got and give it to you. Mm. All you got to do is put us in power. Yep. And unfortunately, you can't redistribute wealth. You destroy it. Yep. And so everybody ends up worse off. The experiment is a dismal failure, but yet it never ends. It's mm. a constant it's a constant struggle to recognize that some people have a lot of ability and they're capable of doing incredible things. And take Elon Musk. Yeah. You know, he is a hell of a lot richer than I am. <laughs> but am I poorer because he's richer? No. I, I, in fact, I'm richer because he's richer. I have his satellite system on my house. Oh, good. Yeah. Way yep. the hell out in the country, 40 miles from San Antonio. <laughs> yeah. And so Elon Musk is a lot richer than me, but yeah. I'm richer because he's richer. Yeah. Right? Yep. And so why people resent that is very hard for me to understand. I think yeah. part of it was I grew up in a fairly low-income family, and my mama had not an ounce of envy in her heart. Yeah, yeah. We would ride by the nicest house in town in our 1940 Plymouth, which was 20 years old. Yeah. She would stick her finger out the window and say, you know, if you work hard, you can have a house like that. There you go. That's right. And, uh, that's right. Sure enough, that's true. I wouldn't live in that house today. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you go back and look. This is saying it's part of what this book's about. Yes. Yep. This book's about is if you go back and look at the places where quote rich people live when you were throwing their newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, I had a newspaper route, 108 papers. And I threw the newspaper in the richest part of town. And you go back and look at those places now, they're, they're, they look like middle-income areas. Yeah. Why? Because of the incredible progress we've made. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and um, those are great points because I think we, we overlook that. We take a lot of it for granted of how much progress that we have been made. And I think it goes to your point about work. Work is so important. I mean, it's one of God's first things in the Bible. It talks about be fruitful and multiply. You know, mm -hmm. we got to be fruitful within the, the world that he created and make sure that we're providing more opportunities along the way. And, and, and work is so important. And unfortunately, you know, Senator Graham, I think a lot of people are losing track, losing sight of that. Maybe it's government welfare programs. Maybe it's the way they're brought up. Uh, but I wonder sometimes about these next generations. It's, it's government. Yeah. What I show in this book is that, you know, the Economist magazine says income inequality is high and growing. Yeah. And so what the book tries to do is go back and look at how is it that uh, if you take the official number of the Census Bureau for 
household income, which is the building block of all of our measures of income inequality and poverty, mm-hmm. and you compare it to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, report on how much households consume, what you find is that the bottom 20% of income recipients spend twice as much as their income. Yeah. The top quintile spends half as much as its in, uh, income. How is that possible? Uh, you remember when Biden said, if we cut, if we double the child tax credit, we'll cut childhood poverty in mm-hmm. half. We double the child tax credit and household and childhood poverty didn't change at all. Right. Because the census does not count 88% of the transfer payments received by low-income households as their income. Mm-hmm. Count refundable tax credits where you get a check from the treasury. It doesn't count food stamps uh, where you get a credit card, a debit card that's charged every month by the government and they pay for your groceries. It doesn't count Medicaid, housing subsidies, a hundred other programs. And when you count all those programs and you take into account taxes as income lost, whereas the census says the top 20% of households on average earn 16 or have 16.7 times as much income Mm. as the bottom quintile, when you take transfer payments and taxes into account, that falls to four to one, not 16 to one. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. say four to one's too much. Sure. Very difficult, difficult debate. And then this, uh, this official, official statistics show that income is more unequal today, 22.9% more unequal today than it was in 1947. We show using federal government statistics that if you count all transfer payments and all taxes, that despite the fact that Bernie Sanders says that income inequality is obscene and un-American and unsustainable, that income distribution is less broad today. In other words, uh, if you compare top income to bottom income, it's actually slightly lower today than it was in 1947. Mm. So we're having Mm. this big debate about redoing American capitalism to deal with exploding inequality and the terrible problems it's creating when, in fact, inequality has declined since 1947 very Mm. slightly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the book does a lot of other things, looks at, you know, who are the the super rich? Right. How did they get to be super rich? Do, 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 does Warren Buffett's wealth make you poorer? Mm. Uh, it's made you richer because he's invested in all these things that have uh, made society more productive. It's made all of us better off. Yeah. So if you want to upset, it's sort of like in the the Industrial Revolution in America, okay? Income grew faster than any other period in world history, okay? Mm-hmm. 
average income of the working person in America from 1870 to 1900 grew faster than it ever occurred on the face of the earth. But because there were 4,000 millionaires in 1900, the progressives obsessed mm. about these 4,000 rich people and neglected the 66 million people who were dramatically better off than any people who had ever breathed the breath of life on this planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why? Because of a quest for political power. Yeah. Uh, yep. And do the rich pay their fair share? The income tax system is progressive. And I'm talking about state, local, and federal taxes, including Medicare and Social Security, which are income taxes. Mm -hmm. It's progressive up to about 14 or $15 million of income a year. Mm -hmm. And for a very small number of people, because they give away vast amounts of money and they earn a lot of money from their capital, the rate drops into the high 30s. Mm. But, you know, all this obsession about billionaires, if you took the income of all the billionaires in the country that's not already taken in taxes and you gave it to the government, it wouldn't have paid for the operation of federal, state, and local government in the year 2000 for a week. Hmm. Wow. Okay? Yep. You know, they're rich, but they ain't a lot of them. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And then, then we look at mobility. Yeah. You know, if you're born in the and grow up in the bottom quintile of earners, what are your chances of doing better than your parents? We have data on it. 93% do better than their parents. 63% do enough better to move up into higher quintiles, mm. including those that go all the way to the top. Uh, is it better to be born rich, brilliant, and beautiful? Yes. <laughs> now, but not being any of those things doesn't disqualify you in America. Yeah. And so what are we committed to? We're not committed to an equality of outcome. We're committed to trying to give everybody what Lincoln called a fair chance and an open way. Mm. Yep. And uh, if you want to do that, what, what happened? And let me just give you a couple of more yeah. figures. That's good. From 1967, in 1967, the value of all transfer payments going to the bottom 20% of income earners uh, was $9,700 on average for the average household. It's grown to $44,900 hmm. okay, over the 50 years to 2017. As that number has exploded, the percentage of prime work age persons, these are people uh, between 18 and 65 who aren't retired, who aren't disabled and aren't in school. The percentage of those people that are actually working in the bottom 20% of households has fallen from 68%. Uh, to, yeah, from 67% to 36%. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Because the rewards for working have 
collapsed. Mm -hmm. The bottom 60% of earners in America, when you adjust for taxes and transfer payments, basically have the same income. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so you want to know where populism and resentment come from, comes from the fact that you got a couple, they're both working, they're barely making ends meet, and uh, they live in the same neighborhood to people down the street that aren't breaking a sweat. Yeah. That are as well off as they are. People yep. in it. It's not racism. No. Not, uh, you know, meanness. It is a justifiable resentment about something that is not right. Yeah. Yep. How do you deal with it? Well, you've got to provide incentives for people to work. And when you're providing now about $50,000 a year of benefits, mm -hmm. you've got to have a mandatory work requirement. Mm -hmm. Now, we had that for aid to families with dependent children. It was a great success. But that's a tiny part of the welfare system. Yeah. The Congress has adopted some additional provisions in this Congress. Mm -hmm. We're still moving very slowly toward a uniform work requirement for all means-tested programs. Yep. Second thing is we got to do something about failure of public schools. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that the only thing where there's quantifiable evidence uh, that it makes a difference in school choice. Yeah. Not surprisingly, competition works. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, I think you've got 14 states that have adopted pretty much a school choice program. We're going to be uh, voting on it soon in Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, I've tried to explain to members of the legislature, I understand the issue. Yeah. The school system is the largest employer uh, in your counties, uh, it hires more plumbers, more electricians, buys more laundry services, buys more food, <laughs> yeah. more servers hired than anybody. But this issue is not going to go away. 82% mm -mm. of primary voters on the Republican primary are for it. A majority of Democrats are for it. Yep. And it's not going to be you're going to vote against it and the school system's going to remember and everybody else is going to forget. This no. issue is not going away. And this issue is going to end up stunning and destroying political careers of people that don't come to grips with it. Mm -hmm. You either believe in freedom or you don't. Is the yeah. state providing money to support a bureaucracy or is it providing money to educate children and who cares more about their education, their parents, parents. or bureaucrats? I right. Mean, it's an easy question to answer to me. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It, uh, you want to change Texas. I've told them, look, I live out in the country. I really appreciate you did me some good on my property taxes. Right. Compared to school choice, take back my property taxes. Yeah. Get Give, give, and I don't have any children in school. My, I have a, a son in New York who's a, a moron for living there, but he lives there. And I have a son in Memphis. Yeah. And I don't have a better any place, Tennessee. But the life of our state and nation will be changed by school choice. That's yep. what I'm saying. And yep. we talk about that in the book. Yeah. We, we show yep. the data about how there's no correlation 
between public funding for public education and achievement. Right. And on international basis, there's no correlation between what countries spend on average and the performance on average. There's a no. lot of good stuff in this book. There is. You need to know. If you want to defend freedom, you need to know what's in this book. That's right. That's and, right. Uh, I've given away the royalties, but if you buy it, don't buy it and put it on the bookshelf. Read it. Yes. It's short. It's concise. Yep. It gets to the point. Yep. No, I think it's fantastic, and that you you went through you went through that really well, Senator Graham. Hit all the key points. The only other thing that I would say was on um, the war on poverty and how the rate, if you look at the official poverty measure, which doesn't include all those transfer payments that you discussed, it has stayed pretty stagnant since that war on poverty. And some will say, well, the war on poverty has failed. But if you look, include the transfer payments, as you do correctly in your book, yeah. you know, if you show figure 3.1, the the missing transfers that were added uh, brings it down to what, 2.5, 3, yeah. 3% uh, in 2016 compared to the 13 or 12, 12.5% that they show. And, and so it's just another indication of these data aren't reflective of what's actually happening. And I love the way you put that too about the envy. I mean, that's that's so much that's there. The, the only kind of concern that I have uh, from a free market perspective, when we include all these transfer payments and we show that income inequality is only four times as great compared to the 16 times as great, or tra or the poverty rate is much lower than what they're reporting, does that indicate that we should increase transfer payments more because that's going to be a cost to the private sector, those who pay taxes. Well, remember now, when Lyndon Johnson introduced the war on poverty, the mm -hmm. objective was not just to give people money. It yeah. was to make people self-sustaining. Yes. If you look at the data, it's clear that what has happened is, is people have become more dependent. Yep. Not less dependent. And you get back to, you know, it's so tempting to say, well, I'll just give you a little example. I was explaining to my mother once about the welfare system. And I was saying to her, we were so lucky uh, when you were working in a cotton mill and that with the welfare system we have today didn't exist mm. because we would have taken it. It would have changed everybody's life. Yeah. You know, Others said, well, I would have never taken welfare. <laughs> and I yeah. said, well, but look, Mama, everybody you would have known would have taken it, was taking it. They would have, that people would have made fun of you for not taking it. The Department of Agriculture would come knock on your door and say, you're hurting your community, mm. cheating yourself. You're owed this money. And my mother said, if you ever say I would have taken it, I'll denounce you. <laughs> but the thing is, yeah. government programs change people. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it wouldn't have changed my mother, but it would have changed almost everybody. Yeah. And it, that's the effect it's had. So, you know, I sometimes wonder, this is a very difficult thing for people to accept, but I wonder if we aren't worse off today than we would have been had the war on poverty never happened. Yeah. You know, obviously some people were helped, but boy, a lot of people were hurt. Yep. And uh, so what I'm not, I'm not suggesting, I don't make a value judgment. Sure. Book, right? What I'm saying is if you're going to give people a minimum income of $50,000, 
you're going to have to have a mandatory work requirement or people are going to stop working. Yeah. And idle hands are the devil's workshop. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're, can you imagine sitting around all day watching television, maybe taking dope? Mm -hmm. This is not the America we want, and it's not the life that people really want. No. But, you know, if you raise taxes high enough and you increase benefits enough, you change people's behavior. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And and that's what we've seen over time. I, I think you're right or right on with your thinking there of would we have been better? You know, taxes would have been a lot lower. We'd have less government spending, less manipulation, less inflation in the economy from the Fed printing all this money. There would It would just change a lot of the dynamics. So as we're wrapping up here, Senator Graham, uh, what would you like to leave us with? I mean, this is a great book that I hope everyone in the audience goes out and gets because there's so much information in there that you've laid out nicely here today. What would you like to say as we close here today? Well, let me say, first of all, the star of this book is America. Yeah. America works routinely. People are born in poor families and go out and achieve great things. If we provided more incentives for people to work, if we improve basic education, especially in the inner cities, we could increase that number. I believe that there is extraordinary ability in ordinary people waiting to be discovered. Yeah. And uh, uh, what the book is about is basically, if you're uh, trying to decide between believing your eyes and believing government statistics, believe your eyes. Mm. And I think we show in here beyond a shadow of a doubt that the current statistics are wrong. Hmm. And critics of the book have basically said, well, what the book shows is that the welfare program worked. Mm -hmm. Well, did it really work? Right. That gave everybody $50,000, but did it really work when the labor force participation rate collapsed? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, when you've got all of these people who are dependent on the taxpayer, and when you've got all of this talent that's being wasted, lives that are being wasted, is that working? Did that work? No. And also, all of the myths about the rich not paying their fair share, uh, this is creating a myth where people think, God, we could have everything we want from government, and just make the rich pay their fair share. Well, it's pretty sobering to recognize that if you define rich as billionaires, that taking all their income we're not already taking wouldn't fund government, federal, state, and local for a week. Mm -hmm. These are things people need to know. In the end, middle-income people pay taxes. Because there's so many of them. And that is the key. That's the key thing people need to understand. There ain't no free lunch. No. There's no guy out there in the forest that we can take his income and we can all be rich. It just is a myth. Yeah. Yeah. People need to know the facts. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Senator Graham. And the myth of American equality, how government bases biases policy debate go get it for the audience thank you yeah, senator graham ordered on amazon there you go I'm on sale 
Uh, there you go. The main thing, don't buy it and put it on the bookshelf. Yes. Uh, I don't need the money. Read it. Digest it. You to know these things. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much for your time today, Senator Graham. And um, God bless you and your family. And I look forward to talking to you more soon. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, listen, God has blessed me plenty, I can assure you. Amen. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. And for the audience, thank you for being with us today. And until next time, let people prosper. Prosper.